Hey, you can have a seat as you sit down, turn to your neighbor, ask them who they think is going to win the Super Bowl. I'm voting for the Lakers. They're my favorite soccer team. Did somebody say Taylor Swift? Who's watching the Super Bowl just to watch Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift? You can raise your hand. Woo! Amen, I guess. Uh, <laughs> hey, it is good to be in this space tonight. Hey, can we give up for Dane for reading all of those verses? We don't play around here at Collective. We read the whole Bible, and we're actually going to start in Genesis tonight. So get ready. Just kidding. Hey, welcome to Collective. It is good to be in the house tonight with you guys. Uh, recently, I came across a pretty interesting survey. The survey took about 20,000 Americans and asked them a series of questions. The series of questions are as follows. Do you believe that you could land a plane if the pilot was unconscious do you believe you could land a plane? The question pretty much boiled down to two categories. The first category was with help and direct guidance from a professional telling you what to do step by step. Could you land a plane? The second category was no help, nobody else in the cockpit. It's just you rocking solo. Something happened to the captain. You said, I'll land this plane. This is what was asked of the people. The responses are astounding. About 56% of men on the survey responded that they felt, I quote, overwhelmingly confident <laughs> they could land a plane with no guidance. And part of me is like, man, half of men in the country think they can land a plane but can't even land a date. What is going on? What is happening? Shots fired. Yeah, I, I see you. 56% believed they could literally do what people spend tens of thousands of dollars and hours practicing landing a plane. It's funny, actually, different groups conducted tests seeing if this is true. There was one episode on Mythbusters about it recently. There was different groups who actually put people in plane simulations, similar to what they do in flight school, and they just put random people off the street and asked them if they could do this plane flight simulation. Nine times out of 10, every single time, people crash the plane. People crash the plane when nobody was guiding them, when nobody had anything to say to them. If it, it was just left up to the individual to land this rogue plane, more times than not, it would have resulted in many people dying, for real. But the fascinating other side of that is that first part of that question asked, if you had guidance, do you believe you can land a plane? And these tests that were conducted actually showed that actually with guidance, the opposite actually happened. Instead of nine times out of ten crashing the plane, nine times out of ten people actually were able to land the plane. If they had somebody who had a little bit more knowledge than them, somebody who had a little bit more experience, somebody who was actually regarded as intelligent in the field that they were doing, they could actually land a plane. And maybe that is true for landing dates as well. Maybe we just need some help. Anyway. When it comes to feelings, I find that feelings make for a bad pilot of our life. When we allow feelings with no oversight to our life to dictate and speak to what we are to do with our life, it's equivalent to placing any one of us as an individual in a Boeing 747 just trying to land that thing with no guidance. See, we're in our final week of our series, Wonder and Controversy. 
And each week, what we have done as a gathering, as a community, is we have touched on different topics through different characters in Scripture. And the premise of this series is this, that God works wonders through controversial people. We started the first week talking on Rahab and God's redemption through her story and how controversial that was. Week two, we touched on God using the faithful to reach the outcasts through Philip and the eunuch. Last week, I touched on how controversial the reality of Jesus' community is. And for the final portion of this series, I was reminded of the passage read tonight. And that passage that was read tonight, and in hearing these, these words, we were given front row access to a person who allowed feelings and in-the-moment decision-making to rule and guide their life. Somebody who decided to abandon any guide whatsoever from helping direct them on how to navigate through life. Each moment boiled down to how he felt. And this leads me to our topic for tonight, that when we do this in our lives, what begins to happen is desperate times, and it creates deceptive people. Desperate times create deceptive people. See, what I hope to accomplish in our short time together tonight is to compel you that the reality of who God is and his instruction and direction for the life of a person is so much more compelling than any other way of life. It's pretty big, pretty big, tall order for tonight. But I believe in it. See, I really desire tonight, if I was to be very upfront and honest with you, to reframe how you think of the word obedience. How you think of the word obedience. See, this word for us right now, it's in a similar category culturally as the word sin. It's not popular. It's not exciting. It's not fun. We seem to be too enlightened to really talk about it. And my desire tonight is to not blast you for 30 minutes on how much you're not being obedient in your life, how much you suck, yada, yada, yada. But my attempt tonight is I desire to share with you through the compelling nature of God's love, that he is better than any other way of life. That more often than not, if we're honest with ourselves, we are won over to Christ for the sheer reality of his controversial love, that any amount of shame and, and fear and this idea of pushing you, but I believe we are won over by his love, and that he loves perfectly and better than anybody else. He's the only one capable of doing it. So if you're in, if that sounds good, say, I'm here for it, okay? We're here for it. I'm down, okay? If not, you can uh, slip out the back while I'm reading. I won't be offended. But let's begin by going back to verses 1 through 3 and then jumping to verse 9. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to these words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What are the camels and donkeys do wrong? Anyway, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. It would not utterly destroy them. And then this last verse just feels so Shakespearean. 
all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. I find that life can, can often feel quite confusing. I don't know if you relate to that. If you do, we can talk after service. You can give me all your tips and tricks. But life can feel quite confusing. Wouldn't you agree? Mix into that. Most of our brains aren't done developing, at least for men in the room, till 25. Hey, shout out to us. The things we go through at a young age, the cultural voices that speak into our life, all the things surrounding us, it gets difficult to know how to navigate through life for really what it means to be human. And I find that this reality makes itself more and more evident the older you get. The older you get, you begin to realize what you thought you knew two years ago, you had no idea what you were talking about. And honestly, thank God that we change our minds about things. To be honest with you, if I never changed my mind, I'd be up here with face tattoos, gold teeth, and a bowl cut, okay? I'd look like your average white rapper. But God had other plans, and he thankfully changed my mind about my overall appearance, what I thought was cool. I don't know what I was talking about, but... Um, to be honest with you, as you get older, life becomes confusing because things you thought you knew, things you thought you understood, things you thought that grounded you, as you progress through life, those things seem to be almost ripped out from underneath of you. Either it's through experience and pain and difficulty or a revelation through a conversation with different people. It, it can be almost like you feel like you're standing on marbles as you get older and older and older. And especially in the life of a follower of Jesus, this can begin to feel just world-shaking when your beliefs are challenged, when things you thought you understood and knew without a shadow of a doubt are questioned. There's actually a book released on this by the Japanese author. I'm going to read his name so I don't mess it up. It, but his name was Shusako Endo. He wrote this book titled Silence. And a few years ago, there was a movie released according to the book. And this book and the setting of it is in 1600s Japan, and it's this mission where these two Jesuit Catholic monks are sent into Japan because their mentor, the person they have followed as they're following Christ, has gone missing. This is actually based on true events. And in the book, upon arrival, what happens to these two monks is their faith is just shook to the core. They show up and they find people are being tortured by the government for their faith. They're finding people are being martyred for believing in Jesus. And what would happen in Japan at this time from the government is they would ask all Christians to step on a little image of Christ. It was this little uh, piece of metal with wood in the center. And they would ask them, just step on the image and we won't have to torture you, we won't have to kill you. And one Jesuit website said this, the surviving, this is called a fumi, okay, the surviving fumi that exists today are smoothed and worn down by the trampling of thousands of feet. In the movie, which was done quite well by Martin Scorsese, it, it traverses through and commentates on this reality that many followers of Jesus face when their faith is shook. In the movie, it commentates that often as followers of Jesus, we tend to do this thing where we begin to have a sliding scale of conviction. That once what we believe to be black and white and quite clear, soon turns to a gray area. What people are willing to do to cross that boundary. And I, I want to show you a short clip from this movie. Because this, this part speaks to what is our response when those things happen in our life. 
when those convictions, those beliefs, those, those trusting moments we have when they're shaken and God responds in silence. Let's watch this clip real fast. If God had been silent in my whole life to this very day, everything I do, everything I've done, It was in the silence that I heard your voice. Didn't know Spider-Man was a Catholic. Anyway, there's a sobering line. But if even God had been silent till this very day, everything I know and had done speaks of him. I find in the journey of faith that as we progress through what it means to follow Jesus as we get older, as we navigate through the confusing ways of life, the things that we felt like at some point God was silent on slowly transition, and the things we have the biggest and most difficult time with isn't necessarily God's silence on a topic or issue or reality, but what I've witnessed in my own life and the lives of others is as you mature in your faith, as you get older, as you traverse through this journey, the things we tend to have a hard time with isn't necessarily what God's silent on, but what God's very specific about. I don't know about you, but as I get older and I see friends go through different things and there's no black and there's no gray area. It's strictly black and white. There's no room for all oh, the culture and the Greek. It is what it is and it says what it says in this book. And this is God's revelation. I tend to struggle and grapple with the Lord in that. I wonder if you can relate with that. See, in our story tonight, if you're unaware, Saul's narrative is, is very simple. Saul is the byproduct of the environment he was raised in. If you want to put it in a quippy, stupid way, you know, in Batman, how, what do they say? Batman isn't the hero the city deserves, but it's the hero the city needs, right? Okay? Some of you didn't help me on that at all, but it's okay. You claim to like Batman, but it's fine. I'm up here solo. It's all good. Think of Saul like he is the king Israel deserves, but not the one they need. <laughs> Saul is the king Israel deserves, but not the one they need. See, Israel from the very conception as a group of people have decided through following this God, this Yahweh, that they're not going to have kings, that they're not going to have rulers, not going to have government. Can I get an amen? Anyway, they literally are told by Yahweh, I will be your king. That at no point do they believe that they need a king. But slowly over time, their hearts become untethered to God, untethered to his law, to his convictions. And the book of Judges summarizes it perfectly, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the heart posture of this nation, of these group of people. And as time went on, they lost their way. They wanted to be like their culture at large, so they decided they want a king. So they tell this prophet Samuel, please go find a king for us, and he finds Saul. And the thing about Saul is he gains his position solely based on charisma, but no character. Saul has no character, but only charisma. Good looks, he's tall. He's not an under six-foot short king. Like, he is the guy, right? But this is all based upon the exterior. 
And Saul gets trashed on a lot, but I believe that, that Saul truly is the byproduct of his environment. In the business analysis world, I know, I'm going everywhere. We're talking about Catholic Andrew Garfield monks and business analysis. Yeah, you're not ready for the next part. Anyway, this is what they say. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it does. Said another way, if you want a six-pack, you can't eat donuts every day. I'm sorry. If you want to have a good marriage, you must spend time with your spouse. There are certain structures and things surrounding an end goal and result that are required. And some things cannot sustain a specific result. Israel has chosen the perfect king for themselves with the heart posture they have. Desperate times create deceptive people, my friends. In the passage we just read, it perfectly summarizes how Saul is as a person. God gives a very specific, distinct command, and he does everything he can to really just be disobedient. Everything he can to do everything but follow what the Lord has said. Where God has made it black and white, Saul begins to see some gray. You could say he kind of goes colorblind with God's value system. And to make matters worse, it seems it's not even like we feel we can begin to believe that Oh, man, Saul's just ignorant. Saul just doesn't know any better. I believe Saul literally has convinced himself, if you read these words, he has convinced himself that he did the right thing. Re read verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He is so convinced that what he is doing is actually what God has asked. See, Saul's most obvious blind spot is self-deception. His most obvious blind spot is that he has convinced himself of a false reality. No matter what he does, he cannot be convinced to repent. It's a dangerous place to be. It's a place of disbelief. Not doubt, but disbelief. Even in his, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. I feel really sorry about it. It's solely image-based. If you read the words, he is only sorry just so he can look good in front of his squad. He literally is only feeling sorry at the surface. See, tonight, I, I want you to understand and know that you do not have to navigate through following Jesus being self-deceived. That's the last thing I want for you tonight. I do not want you to be innocently ignorant of the reality of who Jesus is in your life and what he wants to do through you. And I have to tell you that there, there's two things. If we really want to mature in our relationship to Christ, if we want to follow Jesus in a way that he has our whole heart, the way we get rid of this self-deception is through two things. I believe it's time and knowledge. And time and knowledge will kill deception in our lives. See, if you want to think about how do I grow in my relationship to the Lord, I think it's very fitting to think through how you would grow in a relationship to anybody you know. It's time and knowledge. You spend time with that person, and you become knowledgeable about that individual. You, you care about what they care about. You, you know about what they want to know about. You, you find what's captivating and interesting to them. Because if you don't spend any time with somebody, you have no idea of how to get to know them. You have no idea how to gain that knowledge. And if you just spend time but you never get to know the person, anything about them, it's going to be really hard for you, okay? A little bit of marriage advice, okay? Guys in the room, we're a little thick-headed. Let's be a little quicker learners, okay? Speaking from experience, okay? I, I am such a thick-headed individual. When Skylar tells me, this is what I like and this is what I don't like, the next day, I'm doing it again. I don't know what's going on with me. Maybe I need to get an MRI. I have no clue. 
Sky, you know, know what I do know? She doesn't like blueberries, and she doesn't like her eggs over easy. Okay, if, if I can square those two things away, I, I can please her, okay? I, I can make sure that she is satisfied and she is taken care of in our relationship. The reality is we develop in time and knowledge in our relationship to the Lord. He has likes and dislikes. Just like blueberries and over easy eggs, the Lord has preferences. The Lord has preferences for what he desires and doesn't desire. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Think of somebody immature in the faith, young, not understanding. But solid food, think of an adult able to actually eat, is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Through gaining understanding of who the Lord is and spending time with him, we gain this as followers of Jesus. Think of it this way. For a relationship to be healthy in your life, you need this practice. You need to maintain time with the person you love. And you need to actually care and be invested in what they care about. This is why so many people who really are narcissistic at the core of who they are struggle in relationships. They cannot think outside themselves. If you could summarize the heart posture of Saul the king, he is a narcissist. He is a narcissist in the faith. All that he does, all that he requires is transaction-based, that he just wants to get by barely to maybe gain or churn up some favor with the Lord. But the reality is Saul actually cares very little for what God cares about, and he cares more about his own gain and what Saul cares about. Sometimes... In our faith, we feel this tension. God makes it very apparent with what he cares about. For you, even reading this passage, it may be something you're wrestling with in faith. The Old Testament and its violence can be very hard to overcome. And a little word on this, I, I think because of the blatancy of this passage, it's important to talk about. It mentions that Saul is instructed to kill everything, men, women, children. Some scholars take the perspective of it is more of an allegorical statement, of it's just an extreme statement. I don't really like to follow that avenue. I really do believe this was the instruction by the Lord to Saul. And we can begin to have doubt creep in our mind. We can begin to ask the Lord, Lord, why would you allow this? And I've had many conversations with individuals. I remember many professors at college campuses standing up in the front of the room, citing this as a kind of death note, nail in the coffin on Christianity. And I just want to ask you a question. Is justice a good thing? Is justice a good thing? See, we like justice when it comes to others. We like justice when somebody believes the Nazis could have been stopped because somebody was faithful to stop them. We like justice when we believe racism could have been curbed much earlier in world history. We, we like justice when it comes to the bad guys getting got. Right? We like justice. When it comes to ourselves, we prefer mercy, don't we? When it, when it comes to our life and where we've fallen short, we prefer mercy. Something about this passage you need to understand, my friends, is at this time in history, there is no law of the land. There is no establishment of right and wrong. This is God's form of justice. This is God's form of setting the table of the standard. That this group of people for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years, have disobeyed and gone against the Lord performing horrid, terrible things, doing terrible things to one another. 
And God has finally established that the only way to get the message across is to establish justice. See, there's grace, but there's also consequences, my friends. And often we like to preach this hyper-grace idea when the truth is there are consequences to our actions. And turning away from the face of God will allow wrath. And that is what is taking place in this passage. Do I believe that still takes place today? Not necessarily. I believe that God's wrath is actually much more passive. And we, as people, tend to hand ourselves over to his wrath just through the consequences of our actions. So those are the the two things to really highlight. And the third is this. He's God. I'm not. He's perfectly holy. He's, He's got it all together. I don't know if you looked around lately, but humans don't really have morality figured out. Sorry. He sets the standard. But this may be something you wrestle with. This may be something that's difficult for you. It's very explicit. It's very straightforward. You can name any list of category in Scripture and the commands of Jesus and wrestle with it. You want to talk about nonviolence? Talk about nonviolence. You want to talk about not worshiping money? Talk about not worshiping money. You want to talk about not naming sexuality and whatever you want? That Jesus has a category for sexuality. You want to talk about sexual expression? Jesus has something to say about that. See, we tend to make a gray area in one point that we prefer, that we like. Same thing with the justice mercy thing, but when it comes to black and white, oh, Jesus was very clear to not worship money, but I'm going to worship sex. Oh, Jesus was, was very clear in how we treat women, but I'm going to watch Andrew Tate videos and follow the guy. Yeah, seriously. What are we doing as followers of Jesus, stepping in both pools of camps that are contrary to who he is? We are no better than Saul the king when we decide to place ourselves in a position that we want to have a sliding scale of conviction. And I want to tell you something. God welcomes you wrestling with these things. God God actually desires you to bring your doubts and your honesty to him. I think of Jacob in the Old Testament that he wrestled with God. That too often and more often than not, we, we tend to put ourselves in a place that we believe God wants our best in all areas of our life, and so we refuse to be honest with him. We refuse to actually grapple and wrestle with what Jesus has to say about things. But then we read the words in Matthew that whoever sets aside the least of these commandments or teaches others to set aside the least of these commandments will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. If you believe that this is easy to navigate through and figure out, that I'm not sure you fully understand the complexity of following the Lord. It's often much harder and difficult, filled with tears and blood and sweat, pressing through these questions in faith. There's one Greek uh, literature writer, and yes, each week I'm going to quote some weird 19th century fiction guy. But his name was Nikos Kazantakis, and he wrote this fascinating quip in his biography. This is what it talks about. He shares this wonderful anecdote that, As a young man, he would visit different monasteries. He would have conversations with monks and ask them spiritual questions. And he interviewed them. He asked one monk, do you still struggle with the devil, a man who has been following Jesus for decades? Oh, no, the old man replied. I used to struggle with him when I was young. But now I've grown old and tired, and the devil has grown old and tired with me. We leave each other alone. So he asked, so it's easy for you now? Asked the young man. Oh, no, replied the old man. It's worse, far worse. Now I wrestle with God. You wrestle with God, said the surprised man, and hope to win. 
No, he replied. I wrestle with God, and I hope to lose. I think in our journey of faith, we need to be more honest with the reality of who God is. We need to press in deep to the difficult questions, because if we do not, we will be blindsided by self-deception. But what does this look like played out in our life? What does this look like played out in real time? Well, let's keep reading in verse 10 through 13. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed, performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. Verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice in the Lord, to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It's no secret that Michelangelo is one of the greatest artists of all time. He's up there with, um, I don't know, um, my son Wesley when he draws. But anyway, Michelangelo is just renowned internationally through time and time again. And one thing that is really pinpointed about Michelangelo, and if you've ever been able to see these in person, they're just breathtaking, but his sculptures. His sculptures were actually what he was known for most, where da Vinci was more so architecture. And these guys, they just like painted on the side, okay? Isn't that kind of nuts? They like just painted on the side. Like that's just kind of a little thing. But um, Michelangelo did uh, the Statue of David, this little snippet. I'd show you the full thing, but it's kind of weird, okay? I'm going to be honest with you, like a naked 25-foot man behind me. Not really the vibe tonight. So here's a headshot, I guess. Um, but it's a phenomenal statue, all genitals aside, I guess. And uh, he just did phenomenal. Like the details of his face, the way he's standing, uh, people have just marveled. And everyone's taking photos of it all the time, like they're trying to capture the image. And they're probably getting more likes than people even know the name of the artist, but that's okay. Anyway, um, and he did something else as well, something a little bit less well-known, I guess. But he did a actually statue of Mary holding Jesus after he was crucified. And there's a fascinating story behind this statue. Um, one night, and, and this isn't a, a tomb, so people would go and visit and witness it, kind of like, I guess, I don't know, you like scroll Instagram, I don't know. Anyway, so the people would come and visit this statue, and, and one night Michelangelo is standing in this tomb, just kind of eavesdropping. He was a little bit of like a thirst guy, you know what I mean? Like he's a little thirsty for the likes, like, oh, like, what do you think of my statue, you know what I mean? So there's two guys standing in this room, and they're asking, who did this? And, and if you've seen this in person, it is insane how he was able to capture the detail of her dress. And just, I, I have no idea. I can't comprehend it. And they, and they stand around, and they're talking about who did this statue. And one of them turns to the other and names an artist that is not Michelangelo. Michelangelo, in his rage, he is so frustrated that he is not getting the respect and the reverence that he deserves. He goes, and he carves his name into the statue. This guy... Oh my gosh, the words for him. He, he is just ridiculous. He literally carved his name, and actually, it's a Latin phrase, and he actually did it in improper tense Latin, and the way you can read it is something along the lines of, Michelangelo tried to do this statue. 
he didn't even write, sign his name correctly that he did do the statue. And it can kind of give the essence that he actually messed up the statue. He would go on to claim that this was one of the greatest regrets of his career, that he went and he took something that he created for the Lord, that he took something that he just wanted to honor Jesus and display to the world the reverence of Christ, and he made it about himself. And instead of pointing to what the statue is about, it's now about him. I think this is a very honest commentary that we can begin to point our lives and the carving and the molding of what our lives become towards ourselves instead of Christ. See, God is a jealous God, my friends. So scripture tells us he's jealous. Not like your crazy ex-girlfriend, envious, okay? God is jealous for you. He doesn't want to share you with anybody. He, he, he doesn't want your life to be marked apart from anything else but himself. Because he's worthy of it. Wouldn't you agree? The creator of the heavens and the earth, eternal outside time, kind of worth my, my, you know, my identity. Note this. In living a life for Christ, be very careful to give credit where credit is due. I want to ask you a very simple question tonight. What will your life be marked by? What are you known for at this moment? And I'm not talking about the general population of what people who aren't important to you say about you, but the people closest to you in your life, those that know you best, those that, that know the real you, those that know the character of who you are behind closed doors, what is your mar life marked by? Is your life marked by that you're more of a good time than a follower of Jesus? I I is, your mar is your life marked by how you make people feel, that you just make people feel so good in your room? Or is that you take serious who Jesus is? I remember in high school coming to this reality, being new to faith, and uh, a year into faith in a class is chemistry, and I got a D plus, barely passed. I don't even know if that's passing. Who knows? I don't even know how I graduated anything with that. But anyway, I remember being in chemistry, and, and this guy turns to me, and we're having a conversation about morals or philosophy. I don't know. And he says, oh, by the way, like, you're one of those hardcore Christians, aren't you? And I just kind of sat there like, is there a different type? Ha has the name of Christ been so diluted and polluted with further our own personal agenda than consecrating ourselves and living for him apart from the world. I wonder, if our life was to be marked by any kind of signature, would it be devoted to anything apart from Christ? If we're honest with ourselves, if we sat in our, in our chairs tonight and we asked ourselves a question of who do I know myself to be? Do you know yourself to be ridden with guilt and shame and condemnation and you know yourself just for the wrong you've committed? Or you sit in these chairs tonight knowing yourself, if you've accepted Christ, to be in Christ, that his identity presides over you, that he sings over you, that he loves and cares for you, not because of what you've accomplished, but who he is in you. I wonder how much us as followers of Jesus, even in this place, struggle with that shame and guilt, not residing and resting in the mark and signature of our creator. Let's keep moving tonight. This is the conclusion of all these things, to, to not be deceived, to, to not live a life to which you're just faking it, but being honest and true. You're spending time, and you want knowledge of the Lord, and you're craving that. You want to mark your life by his name, not your own. Read this warning of Saul 
in this last passage of Samuel. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Just heart-wrenching verse right here. Just the capture, how they capture the language is so poetic. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You can, you can just hear the regret and the remorse in Samuel's words. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. The, this man that Samuel has probably witnessed his entire life grow up from being a boy to a man and just mistake after mistake and time and time again not choosing God. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. If you need a picture, just think Obi-Wan Kenobi, Star Wars Episode 3. Okay? Okay, anyway. Something like, this is getting really serious, that he's dropping really strange jokes. I don't know how to feel. See, Saul's story, it's a tragedy, man. It, it ends in this way that further on, later on in 1 Samuel, that he is stranded on a hill, surrounded by the enemy, and he asks his sword bearer to help him kill himself. And that's how his life ends. That's all we know of Saul. Just tragedy after tragedy. And it's, it's so heartbreaking that throughout Saul's life, at any point, he could have been given the opportunity, he could have taken the opportunity to really turn from his ways. At, at any point, I believe in the God and the Lord of new tomorrows. His mercies are new every morning. By the way, that, that is just hyperbole. That's just to say, like, as sure as the sunrise is as sure as God's mercy over our lives, right? It's not like, oh, dang, I sinned. 24 hours until God can be merciful to me. No, he exists outside of time, okay? It not, doesn't apply to him. But at no point in his life did he repent. Did he change his mind? Did, did he stop the behavior? That word to repent, you may think of it in UNM campus, GoPro wearing giant signs. But the reality of that word is, is to turn. That's all it means. I was going one way. Now I've turned and gone another way. To change your mind, to do, to do a 180, to completely no longer go in the same direction. And Saul at no point in his life does this. And there's a difference between feeling sorry, I feel bad about it, uh, I messed up, sorry, and repentance. I, I'm not going to go back to it. And there's times that in our repentance we get tripped up, we, we get a little side eye to that thing, but it's when, when we go back. It's when we go back and choose the Lord every day. See, my friends, every day we are the prodigal son. Every day we are having to choose the Lord over the pigsty. And I wonder tonight how many of us tonight need to make that change. Those of us who are tired of feeling sorry, tired of being in the dirt, tired of feeling dirty, who want to turn to who God is. God is ready to accept you, my friend. Do not reject him. More often than not, we feel like God is angry with us and he's ready to reject us. No, he's ready to accept us. It's us that reject him. And to put it into words for you in, a, in an interesting story that the Lord brought to me this week, I think of my son Wesley during bath time. That's his thing right now. He's loving it, okay? But with babies or toddlers who love bath time, they equally love just making a mess of everything, okay? He's, like, touching his poop now and thinks it's funny. It's so gross. Oh, my God. And he's, and he's, uh, and he's just, like, eating solids now. It's so tough, y'all. It's okay. He, he loves, like, rolling in the dirt. He'll be in our backyard, like, trying to pick up dog poop and eat it. He'll, like, he'll think, like, bird poop is, like, a painting, and he's just, like, the canvas maker, right? Like, he just, this kid gets himself dirty. This kid, he gets himself into so many messes. And every single time, I'm the one that has to clean them up. Or Skylar, okay. We're shared parenthood, okay. 100-100, not 50-50. Anyway, every time it's me and Skylar cleaning him up. 
he, he has no ability to clean himself. He has no ability to say, you know what? I just rolled in the mud for 45 minutes. I think I'm going to go inside and wipe my face off with baby wipes. He doesn't think that way. He's a child. So what I have to do as his father is I have to take him to the bath. I have to turn on the bath. I have to let it fill up with little bubbles because he's my little king anyway. <laughs> give him little toys. And, and when he's in the bath, I had this thought this week of, man, I'm so just like in love with this kid. I, I'm just staring at him and I'm like, I just, I'm so pleased with him. Like I'm so, my heart is full just seeing him. I, I'm not sitting here during that time of him no longer being dirty. I'm not, I'm not seeing him for a couple hours or a couple minutes earlier when he's trying to touch his own poop. I don't think, like, dude, this kid is just so dirty. Like, can he just stop being dirty? This kid just cannot stop messing up and rolling in the dirt, even though I've spanked him and told him not to roll in the dirt. I don't think those things. When I see him, I think, this is my son. I love him. And as his father, I know what's best for him. I know that what's best for him is to not play with his poop, okay? I know what's best for him is to be clean. Because in the long run, being dirty is so uncomfortable. Being, being in soiled clothes that aren't clean and fresh and new, it's uncomfortable. And I don't want my son to be uncomfortable. I, I, I want him to be taken care of because I care for him. Do you know, my friend, that God has the same exact heart posture towards you? That all the times in life when, when we dirty ourselves up, when, when we make kind of a mess of the situation, when we proverbially play in our own poop, when we try to touch the bird poop of life, when we do the wrong thing, when we make the sin, when we, when we fall into that shame, how the Lord sees us is not for the summary of our shame, but for us wanting to be clean. He wants you to be clean. The reality is this, you can become clean by becoming his child. At no point in Wesley becoming my son have I told him, you have to prove yourself to be my son, Wesley. The moment you popped out and I pulled you out, you know, hey, we had a sit-down meeting. You know, you have to go to Harvard, okay? I want, like, six-figure salary, bro. Seven-figure, please. Like, next Jeff Bezos, let's get it going. I want a house in Malibu. Once you prove yourself to me, you can be my son. No, he is my son, and that's the end of the story. He is tethered to me. But for us tonight... We have an option, my friends, that not all are biologically sons and children of God, but that we are adopted into the family of God. This is what John 3.16 is about, to be born again into his family. That when we're born again, we're given this life, zoe is the word, and new life, breath in our lungs, that we came from death. That all we knew was soiled, dirty clothing. But what Christ has to offer us is a clean, new reality. And so in closing tonight, I, I do not want you to place yourself in the position of Saul and say, I've done enough. I've messed up too much. It is what it is. I have a bit of obedience. God's rejected me like he's rejected Saul. My friend, I've said this every week, but if you have breath in your lungs, God has not rejected you. It's another chance. It's another chance. And I simply want to present to you, do you want to be made clean? Are you tired of the past? Are you tired of the shame? Are you tired of the sin? Are you tired of trying to figure out your identity for you? Or do you want to be made new as a child? This is what the New Testament tells us in Rome is that we are co-heirs with Christ. What that means in fancy language is that we get to be siblings to Jesus. That we have a cooperative, a similar identity to Christ as God sees him. 
And if we look in Matthew 3, 17, what does God say about his son? This is my son whom I am well pleased with. That if you are in Christ, he is well pleased with you tonight. God loves you, but I want to be clean. I don't know about you. I want to be made new. So, in closing tonight, do not be deceived. Time and knowledge and obedience and having your life marked by Christ is greater than anything, my friends. Do not reject God. We're the ones that reject him quicker. And he's, and he's so much quicker than, to accept us. So if you want to make that decision, if you want to make that, that change, I just want to pray for you. You can raise your hand. You don't have to, but if, just close your eyes with me. And if you want to ask and have a conversation with God to be adopted in, all that scripture tells us is to profess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart. And all you're doing is you're believing that your way of life is inferior to his way of life and accepting his way of life. So if you want to do that, pray out loud after me this. God, I come to you a sinner. I want to repent from what I've done. I want to turn to you as my Savior. I believe in your virgin birth. I believe in your death and burial. And I believe you resurrected on the third day and ascended to heaven. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead me and guide me to do as you would do. In your name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. Hey, if you need prayer tonight, I didn't tell the team about this, so it's gonna be spontaneous. But if you need prayer tonight, we're gonna keep this moment going.